tonight on Arena. Moving Hearts on the RT Concert Orchestra, a match made in heaven. And Nicole Flattery on her debut novel, Nothing Special. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Moving Hearts fans will remember that in the early 80s, Dublin's Bagot Inn was the place to be. Musicians of the calibre of Donald Lunny, Christy Moore, Davy Spillane created a new fusion of music out of folk and rock and jazz and trad and a whole lot of other things as well. This weekend, Moving Hearts take to the stage at the Gosh Energy Theatre in Dublin in the company of the RTE Concert Orchestra conducted by Gavin Maloney. It's a collaboration that began in 2020 when the band and the orchestra recorded music together for a special RTE Radio 1 St. Patrick's Day broadcast. And I'm delighted that Donald Lunny, Noel Eccles are with me in studio here and Keith Donald is joining us on the line. I knew I couldn't cope with three moving hearts <laughs> in the one studio, but it's great great to have you and great to have you on the line, Keith. I suppose I said to the moving hearts and the RTE contract was a match made in heaven because when I was listening to some of the recordings from that gig back in 2020, Donald, mm. and it really stuck me, it struck me how it kind of was just, it was just like an amplified version, if you like, mm. a filled out version of what moving hearts were doing back in the, in, in the 1980s. Bring mm. us back to then, uh, to that point in time and what you were looking for from Moving Hearts because you had other loads of other stuff going on as well well yeah there, uh, there had been a, 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 another iteration of Planksty and in a way the sort of the formation of Moving Hearts grew from that because uh, uh, I was making efforts to introduce percussion and bass into Planksty but it wasn't going to work uh, because it would have would have been just too much mm. for what it was but uh, Christy expressed an interest in what I was thinking and before I knew it, Christy had kind of taken it by the scruff of the neck and sort of phoned up Declan Sinnott and it, it just grew it like very rapidly from there and turned into a rock and roll band, which like that was the first thing that happened. And I, I was hanging on for dear yeah. life playing my trad bazooki but uh, yeah because uh, when, you, when you say you wanted to bring in rhythm and bass you're, you're kind of talking about you're talking about electric bass and not just you're talking about serious amounts of rhythm that you wanted in there well this was the nub of the problem I, I didn't want to have either acoustic or electric bass I wanted some some sort of yeah. other thing and uh, uh, also a percussion which wasn't recognisably anything that was the other thing. <laughs> so, you know, didn't want much. <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah. so the, <laughs> I, you're not recognisably anything at all, is, is what I'm led to believe here, Noel Eccles. Now, you, you were a little, you weren't there from the very start. At what point did you come in then, Noel? No, I'm one of the new boys. I joined in 1983. But you, you had, you, you brought what probably Donald was looking for in terms of percussion, even if it were a little bit later on. Yeah, well, I think, I think the connection arose because I was asked to do a recording session that the, the rhythm section of the band were doing mm. uh, they were doing a, a soundtrack to a movie called Fords on Water and and I'll say that it didn't win any Oscars <laughs> but we were invited I was invited to come to into the session with the guys and after maybe two or three days of mm. that 
um, we kind of we, we went our separate ways and then we went back to record the title music for the film and Donald then said would you fancy joining a band <laughs> so that was just oh, before yeah. the summer of 83 just before Listed Varna so, mm-hmm. so, so I got involved in and, and then you'll need to put on the, the, the can the headphones there just oh, to hear right. Keith on the other side of the line as well and Keith just so that we have the, the, the triumvirate sorted out in terms of <laughs> points of entrance when did when did Moving Hearts become an element on your musical journey in January 1981, Sean, uh, I, I had been on holiday in Greece and I'd heard uh, some Queen's University students busking Irish trad outside of Taverna. Then it was the first time I really listened to Irish trad close up. And then I went into Taverna and I heard Greek piped music inside there. And I came out and said to my girlfriend, there's something going on here that rings a bell with me and these kind of decorations that kind of lead into full-blown improvisation of jazz. And she said, well, you should talk to somebody like Donald Lunny when you get back home. So I did. I did find find Donald in the bag of inn, and two weeks later I was rehearsing with him in Moving Hearts. (laughs) (laughs) So it really, the the way all three of you speak about it, Donald, Mm. really, it, Mm. it does sound as if it was a kind of a, there was some kind of synergy that brought all of this together. But, you know, I'm throwing around terms like fusion, yeah. Really, go back to 1980. That was a very it's a it's a, it's a, not an old idea now, but it's mm. a, it's a well known idea now. Mm. That was pretty new at at that point yeah. in time to mix all of these different genres and different instrumentations. Yes, it's true, uh, and I I think it was also a sort of a, a go, coming together of the direction Christie wanted to go in with his songs and singing mm. and what I was after with the, with the musical side of it and uh, between us the notion that like the trad and pipes and sax and all these things that, that, yeah. they, that, that it, was, it was really exciting you know yeah. so, uh, 51551 yeah. by the way is the text um, your memories of moving mm. hearts and the bag it in if you still have them <laughs> if the <laughs> memories are still alive uh, we, we would love to, uh, we would love to hear them uh, you mentioned this idea of, of the pipes and the sax and I think this is from it's from um, the tribute to Padre O'Donnell isn't it it's it, 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 where they where they pipes move into the mm-hmm. yeah I just want to play that because and this I suppose in some ways Keith refers specifically to you but let's listen to the pipes I don't presume it's Davy Spillane here yes. is yeah Davy Spillane moving into the soprano sax in in um, in the tribute to Padre O'Donnell track I just wanted to start out with that particular mm. move from the pipes through to the soprano sax. Maybe you can t- talk us through that a bit, Keith, because it's you on the soprano sax there. And there is a, there was something. Did you discover this? Or was it a kind of an accidental discovery regarding the two instruments? Uh, it wasn't actually accidental. Um, uh, when I joined Moving Hearts, uh, Davy joined exactly a week later. And Donald asked me to bring in every instrument that I could blow to that <laughs> uh, meeting with Davy. So I had the whole clarinet family, the whole sax family, and everything else that I had, a car, car load of instruments. And we went through them all, and we found that the straight soprano sax and the Ellen pipes had almost exactly identical ranges, mm. which means I could play uh, in unison with Davy over more than two octaves. 
Wow. But the sound of those two instruments was, you know the sound you get when you scratch your nails on the blackboard? (laughs) 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 It it would set your teeth on edge. So I had this rare instrument. I think I owned the only one in Ireland. And my father had kept it after his band disintegrated in the late 1920s. And it was a curved soprano saxophone, which is more saxophone-like and less oboe-like. So we we tried that. And the two instruments, everybody said, yeah, that's a sound. That works really well. So I didn't realise that the curved saxophone had... We should explain, generally the soprano sax kind of looks like... a more a little bit longer than a clarinet or an oboe. It's a slightly different shape. It's more mm. like a, it's a cone-shaped thing rather than a cylinder like the like the clarinet. But th- generally, we would think of the saxophone as the curved instrument that Lisa Simpson plays for yeah. for, one, for ease of reference. Yeah. But you had yeah, a curved look, soprano sax. Is it a very different kind of feel to it or sound to it? It's a different sound. It's not as edgy. It's mm. not. Uh, it's not as razor blades as, as a straight soprano sax, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's a much more rounded, smoother sound, and mm. that seemed to work well with the Allen pipes. Yeah. By the way, Lisa Simpson plays a baritone sax. Yes, yeah, she's an amazing player. <laughs> Don't be getting technical now. Yeah, 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 it's a much bigger saxophone. Let me let me explain that. But it's the same shape as the one you're talking about. That's the kind of the point I'm trying to make. Um, let let let's have a listen to the tribute to Padre O'Donnell because I was, I was listening to this. Day. I don't know how long it is. Is it nine or uh, ten, eleven minutes, something like that? Ten at least. Yeah, yeah. I, and it moves from that opening pipes through the curved soprano sax of, uh, that, that uh, Keith was telling us about there and then it, when it gets further in we're up at this level of activity Tribute to Father O'Donnell from Moving Hearts. By the way, text just in. Moving Hearts, a whole band full of geniuses. <laughs> uh, yes, the bag it in. I'm still here. Summer of 80 or 81. What gigs they were, says Eddie C. There's, a, there's an exclamation mark after what gigs they were. There's a lot contained in that exclamation mark, I think, from Eddie C. Um, but, but Donald, it, was that... Oh, sorry, I wanted to ask Noel, first of all. Because the rhythm that's going... I was referring to the lovely bass kind of rhythm. Mm-hmm. That's there. But what were you playing in underneath that? What instruments were involved? Uh, well, I was playing a lot of hand drums, congas, bongos, shakers, and there's also some castanets and tambourines because there's, there's a bolero type... Because it's Padre mm. O'Donnell there's a, a reference to Spanish Civil War so we use that kind of those Spanish colours uh, mm. but also there was a th- there's a thing I think that's, that's, that's apparent in that track and it's a really good example of it is that the orchestration that exists in Moving Hearts as a as the band exists on its own is very defined. It's not like mm. we just all get up and jam away there. It is really defined and like Donal is responsible for most of that and we're, and the things we bring to it is kind of cleaned out mm. and then all those layers are put in there. Mm. And that, that track is really a really good example of being able to play in three, in four, in two, in six, in twelve and all the subdivisions mm. yeah. and all the metric modulation that goes on. You know, so there's it's actually the first the first jig tune is in three is ours in twelve rather, and then it goes into a slow three, 
and then it goes back into the jig tune yeah, again. So and there's all these different kind of counter rhythms against one another. So And I guess that would probably in some ways, Keith, you, you'd have heard those counter rhythms happening <laughs> with those musicians who were who were busking outside the taverna in Greece, you'd have heard all of that sort of thing going on uh, over there. But but Donald, mm. I, I said this thing at the beginning about a match made in heaven. In fact, when I was listening to this today, I was thinking that that it is really it's the moving heart sound, mm-hmm. but the orchestra brings something. It's not it doesn't bring something new to it. It just it amplifies is the only word I can think of. I think it, yeah, I agree. I, it's it's a great combination. It's working and. Uh, I will say that that uh, Professor Eccles here is really a very important bridge between the band and the orchestra because of your experience of orchestras, mm. orchestration, uh, the amount of percussion that you've had at your disposal and that you weren't afraid to bring onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... Because uh, like, the minute you saw it, I presume you said, yes, we'll have that and that and, and, that, and that. And that. Where did you get that gong? <laughs> whenever whenever right. I first joined the band, I was mm. in, the sim- in the RT Symphony Orchestra. Mm. And I remember the first day, we'd just done a lunchtime concert. It was like a an afternoon in July and I went down to meet the guys and I was in my full three-piece suit <laughs> shirt and tie and I walked into the rehearsal room with the upstairs in the baggage mm. where they used to store all the old barrels and chairs and the game or the the Space Invader machines and all that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. and I remember walking in and the guys that I hadn't met from the band were like what? And I remember Davey looking at me like who is this guy what's he come for? <laughs> and he re- referenced it recently um, yeah. and it was it was that thing I was coming into this environment that I hadn't been involved in before and all of a sudden, I found I was with a bunch of really great people and really good friends, and kind of has yeah has has stayed that since. Uh, yeah. Another one in in nineteen eighties Belfast, Moving Hearts brought us to a musical Nirvana. Woo-hoo. Thanks so much, says that texter. Um, and, and Keith uh, Noel has that background, uh, that orchestral background as well. And you mentioned, you know, your your starting point was, uh, I think, basically was clarinet and classical clarinet. How how big a shift then was it for you in terms of what where Moving Hearts brought you as a musician from that classical training through onto the soprano sax and and onto the sort of music that we just heard there yeah it was a huge shift for me because um yes you're quite right i had spent six years playing classical clarinet but i'd also um been a jazz musician i've played in sammy houston's jazz club for two years when i was a schoolboy uh with van morrison around the corner playing in the maritime uh, those were those were the days, were they not? Um, <laughs> but I had no um, I had no compartment in my mental filing cabinet of music that was labelled Irish traditional music, and I had a heck of a lot to learn very quickly. Uh, I, I was kind of thrown in at the deep end of, of, of learning um, by especially Donald and Davy, and uh, they were great teachers, and I had a lot to learn, and I'm still learning. Um, but I'm glad that it happened because I, I wouldn't have that engagement with Irish traditional music otherwise. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people would talk about moving hearts having maybe opened up traditional music to them in a way that they hadn't that they hadn't quite expected. I know Horseps were doing their thing as well, which was a, mm. but it was a slightly different thing from the the kind of musical complexity I think that is involved in in much of what what moving hearts were doing. Talk to me a little bit about McBride's March, Donald. Oh well, that was a collaboration between uh, uh, Owen. O'Neill, bass player, and Declan Sinnott, who was in the band at the time, who had big input into that tune. And um, <clears throat> it was one of the first things that we did. Mm. And we were all fired up. 
<laughs> so so we aimed very high. Yeah, and and again, yeah. it's it's another big long piece. I think it's right, maybe yeah. seven or eight minutes, maybe maybe yeah. even a little bit longer. I'm, I'm going a little bit into it at this stage, but again, mm. is to get a sense of where it builds to, because these things often start small with moving hearts That's and right. the orchestra, and become something much more complex and bigger as they move along. You know, as we're all we're all kind of bopping around along here in the studio. That's Moving Hearts and McBride's March. And I'm saying as as we were listening to that, Noel Eccles, I mean, there's a lot of percussion going on in underneath there. But Davy Spillane is basically showing us, yeah, you can actually swing on mm-hmm. on on the pipes if you play them the right way. Oh, well, I mean, I think I think <laughs> Dave, a wonderful piper, a wonderful musician. But I think also yeah. Davy's piping is informed by his interest in the electric guitar and all mm. sorts of other music. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. he, like mm. when Davy solos, it's, it's, it could be Jimi Hendrix, you know, he's amazing. One of the things I'm really looking forward to is the concert orchestra, the RT concert orchestra, hearing Davy as a soloist and hear him play his low whistle and play his pipe because he is one of the most expressive musicians I've ever heard. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to that. But also just listening to that track, the concert orchestra can play anything basically they can fit into any genre it it seems to be I mean I've done Ooh. some of the shows with Guy Barker yeah. and they can play the big band jazz thing they can do film music but they can fit in with any band and I, uh, orchestras when they combine with electronic bands or rock bands or whatever tend to be kind of like a something that's attached to it and it's dragged along with it but I think the concert orchestra are very, very well able to just fit straight in there. And you can hear that. Mm. I mean, that was recorded in a matter of, I think, an hour and a quarter or something like that, wow. that track. Mm. So, this was from the 2020 gig. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it went out on air on um, March the 17th, 2020. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how, how suitable then that March the 17th, 2023, I suppose not a lot could happen in the intervening <laughs> years. It's only really now that we That's could right, get to the yeah. stage of, of, yeah. of planning that. But Keith, mm-hmm. let me come back to you, Keith, on, on the track that we just mm-hmm. heard there with Davy on the pipes and I refer to this swing that was in there he, he almost plays them to me Noel said the guitar I could kind of hear a saxophone feel off them in there could you could you pick that up <laughs> off it oh absolutely um, Davy and I uh, in the beginning of Moving Hearts when we were on the roads both in Ireland and abroad Davy and I being the oldest and the youngest in the band shared a room together and we used to talk an awful lot about phrasing and all that kind of stuff. And we kind of learned from each other. I was learning trad from him. And he was kind of learning jazz inflections from me. So I, I, I suppose in the background to what was happening in the rehearsal room and on the stage, there was that process happening as well. That's a, a, kind of extraordinary. That, what, what strikes me, Donald, is it, it's not just uh, all the musicians can obviously play it. That's a kind mm. of a given. But it's an openness uh, that seems to be there. Is it an essential ingredient for a moving heart member to have that kind of flexibility? I suppose is what I'm, what I'm talking about. I suppose so. Yeah, I think uh, we're we're uh, we're basically a cooperative as well. Mm. So there's that. That's a kind of a, a an equality across the board, and it actually creates a um, a different sort of affinity. Yeah, I'm just looking Which here. Uh, yeah. Finton Convery, by the way, I hope I'm saying Finton's name correctly, was the guy who uh, talked about Belfast and um, music, a musical Nirvana. He says, tell them that the buskers in Greece were Neil Martin, 
Yes, that Neil Martin, the cellist, etc., etc., composer, piper, pianist, um, uh, Fergal Morgan and Ray Gallen. And yes, that that's him, Neil Martin, um, Fintan Convery says. That's, that, so that, did you, you didn't know any of them at the time, clearly, Keith. How long were you in the you taverna, know? Keith? <laughs> Good question, Donald. Uh No, I didn't know any of them at the time But I've known Neil Martin And I've worked with him many times mm. since then But funny enough, we've never talked about Greece I yeah. must quiz him about that Absolutely and, and thank, thank you to your contributor and from, from Belfast for that Thank you Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 don't, I don't know why Do you know what? I'm going to play I'm, I'm going to play I'm making an executive decision here <laughs> I'm going to play a little bit of Fenor And this is, I suppose, for you as much as anything Keith, let's have a listen Keith, that was just to to let you let the listeners be reminded of how you can play the bass clarinet. I was saying to to Donal and Noel in studio here, it's kind of like the bass clarinet is the aristocratic side of the saxophone. I would I would argue. Where do you think it fits in alongside the sax? It is a it is a much more I don't know elegant sound. I would say. Yeah, it has an elegance to it, but I also love that um, that kind of woody. Uh, depth to it mm. that you don't that you don't get in many instruments. I mean, you get it in a bassoon to a certain extent, but you don't get it in many instruments. Uh, and certainly your regular clarinet, B-flat clarinet, while it does have a bit of that down the bottom end of, of the range, it, it doesn't get down to those depths of the mm. bass clarinet, which is an octave lower. It, yeah, it's just, it's a fabulous sound no matter who's playing it. Well, we are playing it there, let's let's say. And and also, a bit like Davy does did with the pipes in the previous tune, you're kind of swinging it there in, in a way. I mean, I know the bass clarinet has that facility in it, but it, it's an orchestral instrument that quite often would have a much more, uh, more I suppose, classical control and beat to it. Yeah, uh, there's a few jazz musicians that have used it in the past, um, uh, and, and I love them for it uh, because it's it's a hard instrument because it's so quiet to use to mm. use it in the jazz context. But it works really well at the beginning of Fenor there, uh, especially with the orchestra. I mean, that could, uh, with the orchestra there, that could be an ECM record straight off. It's, mm, it's, yeah. it's just yeah, yeah. It just does it for me every time with the orchestra. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say what to expect. Uh, what do we expect on the 16th and the 17th? Uh, sorry, the 17th. Which the 16th and the 17th, the 17th and the 18th, 17th and the 18th, 17th and the 18th. What? Because <laughs> you obviously have something on the 16th that you know you're not going to be there. <laughs> That's no. Um, what can, it's, it's it's more of what we've just been hearing, but big long sessions. Not not the little 45 clips. In fact, oh. second clips I've been giving you, Donald. True enough. Yeah. I mean, we we had the opportunity to sort of go over the orchestrations with Gavin Murphy uh, mm. a, few, a couple of weeks ago and it was brilliant it was yeah, such a was such an exhilarating yeah. day Gavin Murphy's done the arrangement yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, all right, yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. um, and I, I suppose we're, we're basically playing the full set that we would play that we've played over the last number of years um, yes. so yeah. with everything orchestrated um, and some more orchestrated than others. We're also doing some of the songs as well. We'll be doing uh, some, some of the mm. of the 
the songs that were protest songs back in the early 80s, they still apply now. Yeah, it's you extraordinary when you hear some of Christie's songs from that. Yeah. And it did strike me that, I suppose, in recent years, and in kind of, there was the, the hiatus kind of ran out, not ran out, it probably ran out of money in the 80s. It was just too expensive to do it. Sure. Um, when you come out, it, it has been more of an instrumental band, really, in its recent incarnation, Donald. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Well, the last uh, sort of uh, hurrah of the band was the opportunity to record uh, an instru- the instrumental music that we hadn't mm. recorded previously. So th- there was about, I don't know, there was enough anyway between that and the commission that I got, which was for the tribute to Father O'Donnell, to comprise an album, a vinyl and so we went for yeah, it. And, and that became the storm. Yeah. That was the storm. Album. The storm, which everybody talks about. And I believe you still meet musicians, and they say, "Oh, the storm." Other musicians across all sorts of genres, they talk about that album, Donald. It's great. It's great. We get, it from, we get it from get all sorts of places. Yeah. Um, I would say mm. we'll, Mick Hanley will be singing with us in the mm. in yeah. the uh, board gosh as well. And mm. just we have we have great colleagues within the band with with. Uh, Anto Drennan, Anthony Drennan, guitar player who's been out with Mike and the Mechanics recently mm. and with the cores and then we've Graham Henderson on keyboards and Liam Bradley on drums and they're just f- fantastic guys to be yes. around, wonderful musicians yeah. and of course the, the inevitable Owen O'Neill on bass okay. as well. So. Extraordinary lineup. Of, if you had those musicians then add in the RTE Concert Orchestra. <laughs> what, a, what a lineup you have. Right. All that. Yeah. Moving Hearts, an iconic band of multiple talents which made my 15-year-old heart leap for joy and still does oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, from a West Cork fan yeah. so I hope that West Cork fan can make his or her way to the Borgosh Energy Theatre 7.30pm on the 17th and 18th of March I believe the 18th is practically sold out at this Ooh, point in time think. there are still some seats left for the 17th but I'd say you need to get a move on um, to, to be sure to be part of it Moving Hearts and the RT Concert Orchestra Borgosh Energy Theatre Dublin 7.30 on the 17th and the 18th of March orchestras.rte.ie or boardgoshenergytheatre.ie I guess we'll probably get you all of the details as well Keith Donald on the line Donald Lunny and Noel Eccles in the studio lovely to speak with all three of you thank you enjoy the gigs thank you Nicole Flattery's debut collection Show Them a Good Time is a collection of short stories that draws comparison with the classic age of paranoid 70s cinema and fiction when it came out in 2019 it was praised by everyone from Sally Rooney to Pat McCabe and a lot of others in between now Flattery who lives in Galway has just published her first novel it's called Nothing Special set in mid 1960s New York the place of Andy Warhol and his factory scene. It's a coming-of-age tale narrated by a character called May, daughter of an alcoholic mother whose life is transformed when she lands a job as a typist for Warhol's team, transcribing interviews for a book in progress. This job allows her fly-on-the-wall insight into the now mythical time and place that was New York City in the mid-1960s. Delighted that Nicole Flattery is sitting opposite me in the studio this evening. It's great, uh, Nicole, that it's mid-1960s New York because we don't even have to start with, so is this autobiographical? (laughs) (laughs) It is. It actually is. No, it definitely isn't. Not this one. (laughs) Um, What brought you to that particular... I mean, it's a very exciting time, obviously, but what brought you there? Mm -hmm. Um... I think that, like, well, a couple of reviews have noted this, but I initially I felt like it was like a a kind of a stretch for me and things. But then when I, I read over the stories and I, when I was finished the novel and I read over the novel, I think all the thematic concerns are the same, like women, work, 
um, like you said, their paranoia, surveillance. It, it, it does feel like an extension of the stories rather than, although mm. it is a historical setting and I did have yeah. to think about that. Like I was like, oh, they're not using phones <laughs> and whatnot. But, uh, you can't look it up on the internet. <laughs> they cannot, they're not on WhatsApp. Um, but yeah, so I, it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be initially. Um, but was, was there something about the period mm. itself? Was it a period that you had, you know, dipped yeah. in and out of in your younger years? Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating period. And there's a lot, mainly, um, it's a big, it was a great time for cinema. And I watched a lot of films from the, the 60s and 70s. And I was a big fan of that kind of time, that mm. style. Um, so that was something I was thinking about. I was thinking about films a lot in this book. Um and I was I was thinking about how to kind of recreate it in in some way, um, and also it was an interesting time because I think things which I mentioned in the novel would change completely. There was a complete cultural change um, from the fifties to the sixties, and what it felt like to be a teenager then was so different um, to what it had felt like previously. So I wanted to. It, it was an interesting t- time to set a coming of age novel, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and again, I'm I'm tempted to again. Mm. With the autobiographic thing, <laughs> did you see any parallels between that shift from the fifties mm. into the sixties, and any point in time in your own yeah. uh, teenage years or youth? No, not exactly. But I think the kind of search for freedom and like yourself, I think that never really changes from like decade to decade. I think that I would have felt similar feelings mm. to me. It's funny because I, I I was saying this before that I I was asked a lot if the stories were autobiographical. Um, even though they had like quite strange things happening in them. But I'm not being asked if this is autobiographical, but I do feel very close to me. And there's probably a lot of me in the book, as there always naturally is. I think every writer yeah. is lying when they say otherwise. Well, they, um, they say that all fiction is autobiographical, don't they? Yeah. All of the characters are you, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But you know, obviously you created them. <laughs> in did, some, yeah. And certainly <laughs> may, whatever about, you know, because mm. there are real life people in here as well. We'll come yeah. to those in a second. But the character of May, because um, mm. uh, we see her at two points in her life yeah. uh, well two major points mm-hmm. I suppose in her life one in 20 what year is it yeah 20, 2010. Tw- 2010 yes mm-hmm. 2010 is, is when the kind of the present yeah, moment yeah. if you like of the novel from where she's narrating mm-hmm. and looking back to 1966 mm-hmm. for the most part we do get an in-between bit as well but um, t- tell me about the woman in 2010 mm. again which can't be autobiographical no, because she be, given that she was future. born in, in 1950 something <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, I, I really wanted to, what I really wanted to do um, with this novel was, well, I spent a long time thinking about what novels I like um, and novels that I like, like, well, I prefer, I like lots of different novels, <laughs> show kind of the span of a whole life. And I, I really wanted to do that with May. I wanted to show what effect that like being in the factory and working on this book and everything had when her, she was older on her, her, her other life, the life that she had after um, the excitement, you know, Um so yeah, I, I I really that was my my goal, and I because I didn't want the book <laughs> to be about Warhol. The book is not about yeah. Warhol. It was it's about this girl and her relationship with her mother, and I wanted those relationships to be developed in the other other kind of chapters. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Yeah. So she well, let's talk about her as a teenager. Mm. Then she she has come from. Difficult enough situation yeah, in terms yeah. of her 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 mother and mm. her mother's relationship mm-hmm. with alcohol yeah. and inevitably how that impacts on the mother daughter mm. relationship here. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's the other thing. You know, she's like someone that has like a difficult home setting, so she's searching for like a different kind of home. 
Um, and also she has that thing that you have when you're, you're 17 where you're looking for someone to confirm your idea of yourself, you know, that you're special or that you're, you know, extraordinary. And that that's what she's out seeking probably in a more intense mm. way because she doesn't have a great bond with her, her family. As you say, this isn't a book about Warhol, but mm. it is about May as a typist, even yeah. even using that. That term, mm. you kind of go a typist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's such a it's such a nineteen sixties term, mm. and it's not necessarily something we associate with the factory no, and the no. world of of Andy Warhol. So, just give us a, a sense of what these uh, there are several of these women, yeah. young women working at this job. Yeah, of course. So they're they're typing up in the novel a book called A A a novel. So you could buy, you can go out to the bookshops today and you could buy a, a novel and um, it was made by Warhol kind of following his entourage around for 24 hours with a tape recorder and then these girls were charged with you know listening to it and, and, and typing it up um, the reason I, I just really love um, typewriters and the idea of like sitting listening to someone else talk um, it's kind of paranoid you know um, idea of like how it would get into your brain you know um Really made me, I feel like it's it's quite a contemporary thing. Mm. Like it's quite a contemporary subject, even though it's set in the the sixties. Um, so I thought it would be an interesting way to write about that sort of communication um, without being like I don't know. We all use Twitter or something like that. I don't. <laughs> and, and, and did you listen to tips mm. of of Warhol for yourself in the writing of the book? I've listened to I listened to a lot of stuff. <laughs> I listened to what was available to me. The actual tapes are in uh, the mm. Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, which I could not go to during COVID. Um, but I would like to at some point in my life. So it was what you could find online yeah. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of, of his voice. Mm. You describe um, the, his voice as kind of it's quite soft and yeah. quite um, off in the background until he is speaking with Ondine. This yeah. is the and you said the world of film interests mm. you. You hear so Ondine is a real person. Yeah, real person. Yeah, so explain who who he mm-hmm. was and. And why the, even Warhol comes mm. to life, and I, I think May comes a bit to life yeah, yeah. when Ondine is around the place as well. Yeah, I he was a, a kind of um, you know superstar of Warhol's. He had these you know superstars, these people that he mm. sort of made famous by turning the camera on them and things. And he was in a lot of Warhol's films and things. He's in one of the 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 main ones he's in is Chelsea Girls. Um, he's quite a long monologue in that, um, and he was sort of extraordinary. And like a little, a little bit forgotten in the not forgotten by people who know Warhol, but forgotten by in the context of maybe like Edie Sedgwick or whoever like that. Um, but a fascinating figure and like quite um, a good speaker and just like interesting. Um, I found when I was when I started researching the novel, he was the person that I I, I felt closest to or mm. most interested in. And how how good an actor was he? Or, and what was the nature of the How film? How good of an actor were any of them? <laughs> that's good that's, question. That's, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know if any of them were good actors, but I do think that they had, like, an electric kind of screen presence. Um, mm. I don't know if any of them would have been able to do the actual difficult business of being an actor. It requires a lot of discipline, which, like, they famously did not have. But um, <laughs> I feel like the films that I've watched of his, I, I, there's something, you know, quite charismatic and... and electric about mm. watching him rather than him being actually good at it. Yeah, so he has a screen presence yes, rather, rather than, than, than and and Edie Sedgwick who's another character mm. who's part of the uh, part of the novel as well. Yeah. Uh, is is was that a, was there a similar attraction yeah, for you of there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you know Edie is 
someone that gets sort of like a bad reputation, you know, like I feel um, we've kind of taken her apart in the culture and you just see her as like the iconic kind of maybe like her with a fur coat or mm. hot, like eyeliner and things like that. And I don't really think she was as, you know, spoiled or whatever, you know, poor little rich girl as everyone thinks she, thinks she was. Yeah, because um, she did have a big trust fund. She did mm. and she <laughs> spent it liberally. <laughs> but I feel, um, yeah, I feel like all of them that were more interesting and um, when you actually looked into their lives than I, than I expected them to be. It took me a while to write this. Like I, I've been writing this book for maybe three years and researching maybe on top of that for another year. So I was I was glad that they all proved to be interesting subjects. <clears throat> yeah, and, and I mean, there are others from mm. that world in there, mm. but essentially Warhol's a bit of a in-the-wings character. Yeah. Edie and Ondine, yeah. yeah, they get their, mm-hmm. they certainly get good scenes yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the novel. But you kept a very tight focus. I mean, th- yeah. there, there would be a, you could say, like, this is this is a wild, energetic world. You could have gone in on, on epic scale, but you kept it quite. Yeah. So I was abiding by the rules of, well, the rule of Jaws, which is uh, don't show the shark, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like don't show it because you'll never live up to it. Um, and I, I do truly agree with that. Like, and when I, I, I was like, he has to be more of a presence more rather than a, a person because if he's a person it'll just be embarrassing um, and then there's lots of Warholian ideas in the book but mm. I knew that I, I had a <clears throat> when I started writing it and that's how it <coughs> transpired to be I wasn't surprised um, uh, The Rule yeah. of Jaws is this is this <laughs> I've never heard Have of you the never rule. heard this? No I've, oh, I've, it's a, it's I'm very innocent <laughs> I, I know what Jaws is okay, but so this is your own rule. Is yeah, it a no, rule? No, I know it, it's like you know, if like in Jaws when they couldn't. Um, yeah, I don't think they they had enough budget to. Yeah, and they to, they foolishly showed us some of the. They, they shouldn't have showed us any of the shark, yeah. but so there was all conjured from atmosphere and everything because they couldn't afford to actually have a shark. And I was like, that, that's why that film works because he, yeah. the shark is barely in it. Well, John Williams helps us as yeah. well, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. You know, a little two two piano notes <laughs> and off she go. Oh, I don't want to go near that water that has nothing <laughs> exactly, in it. Yeah. <laughs> Su- suggestion is everything. You say that there are lots of Warholian or Warholian ideas mm-hmm. within the novel. Yeah. What were the ones that are uh, flatarian ideas, if I can, if I can put it that way. Where does the overlap come? Um, I'm very interested in, and I think that this is why it was a, quite a good fit. Um, consumerism, um, the idea of like one thing that I was like, I'm always been interested in in the stories as well. That the the people in the background of the the more celebrated person. Mm. I have a story in the collection called Track and it's about a comedian's girlfriend and how she sees his life, how it is presented and how her it actually is. So sort of the private life versus the public life. And the, these characters were so interesting to me because they, they had such a public life that you, you can't almost can't imagine their private lives. Um, and I really wanted to, to, to see, to, to, to show that or to, to look at that anyway. Um, and yeah, and performance. Um, I'm very interested in like the, the performing self, you know. And mm. these were people constantly performing, you know. They ne- they never stopped. Um, so yeah, there, there was a, like a lot of cross and ideas. Um, and I, 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 it never got boring for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the, the reviews are so positive on oh, it, and the you. reactions for that everything I've read and mm. what I read of it myself, you yeah. know, it's, it's all it's all very positive. Mm. What kind of pressure, if any, does that put on either the next set of mm. short stories because the short stories were hugely oh, successful as well, 
or another novel? I don't ever feel any pressure. People always ask me about pressure and then at my launch on a Thursday, um, the writer Thomas Morris made a lovely speech and he was like, Nicole must have felt under pressure. I was like, I never felt under any pressure. I feel, I put myself under pressure. Um, no okay. kind of pressure. All right, so the rule of Jaws is you're not going to tell me how much <laughs> pressure you're under. You. <laughs> Nothing special is the title of the novel we've been speaking about with Nicole Flattery. It is published by Bloomsbury. The name Sean O'Reilly is synonymous with the development and reimagining of Irish traditional music as innovations in the art form has led to the exciting traditional music scene in Ireland and beyond today. However, when you think of O'Reilly, electronic music might not really spring to mind immediately. My next guest, Neil O'Connor, known as Ordnance Survey, brings experimental electronic music to the work of O'Reilly. Nomos Oreda Reimagined is Neil's show. It's coming to the National Concert Hall on Thursday week. That's on March the 16th. Um, you've been in this area of electronic music, I suppose, for I suppose a quarter of a century, really, at, at this stage. But we had one of your collaborators. You've, you've collaborated with traditional music in the past. Donal Lunny, who was in with us at the beginning of the programme. Um, Lancome's Cormac McDermott and Mirren the Cowley. Why Oreda and what was it about Oreda that spoke to you at this moment in time? Um, I think it was kind of a long relationship I had with his music. Um, I studied composition. I, I wrote a couple of symphonic works and orchestral music. And I'd always ad- admired his kind of transition of European classical music into traditional music. And one of the kind of downsides of, of writing that way in contemporary music for instruments is it takes a long time for pieces to get played mm. so um, I was looking at a way to kind of use his works to build a body of electronic music and to add to a tradition um, the same way that Arirda did with traditional music I suppose So in those in those early compositions of yours it was it, it, when I use the word traditional here you, you were in a traditional way you were com- composing classical music for orchestral combinations or chamber combinations it was pretty much the, the centre the centre of that classical world. That's where you started out. Well, I studied uh, I studied music um, in Trinity. I did a PhD and wrote these big pieces. But the problem with this with this kind of composition is they get performed very rarely. Mm. So I was looking for a much smaller unit of kind of uh, of yeah. working in, in yeah. some way. In a way that it could be performed more yeah, than it, and yeah. more than once. Getting the first one is <laughs> yeah. the issue. And then when you have it done once, to get it heard again. Yeah. So the the reimagining that you're doing here is it's what's called spectral music. Explain that term to me. I'll try and break it down to hmm. a more uh, uh, anatomical level. <laughs> User-friendly. Uh, yeah. User-friendly, yeah. Um, so one of, the, kind of, one of the, the big things that's used in this technique of music is something called granular synthesis. So think of sound as a, a box and you break things down to small grains of sound. Hmm. And what you can do then with audio software is move those grains around and you create a very large, dense plate so um, 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 can I put it this uh, is it that you take uh, whatever the sound that a piece of music makes and you literally tear apart all of the little components within that yes exactly, and you, you yeah. throw those little components do you throw them up into the air and see where they land or do you rearrange them you you use without getting too technical yeah. you use certain processes like pitch shifting where you can pitch down an octave pitch up an octave uh, time stretching where you're speeding up or slowing down those sounds as well and then you're using a process of layering so you're not using just one audio file you're using two four six ten twenty hmm. to create this kind of wall 
And I suppose computer technology and the advances in technology make that much more doable now than when somebody like Steve Reich was combining where he had to put a bit of a tape on top of a bit of a tape on top of a bit of a tape. Yeah, I still use a little bit of tape recording in in my work. But uh, no, you definitely need very powerful computers to to get this process done. So, Misha Era, I think, if you you mention the name Sean O'Reilly, that that's probably what most people will think of. So tell me, talk to me a little bit about the process of reimagining that iconic piece. Yeah. So again, it was taken from a very small fragment of the main theme. So I analysed the main theme and what you can do is you get an analysis of all the frequencies that are used. Um, so that was the kind of the basic start point, mm. the, the brass in particular. Um, I then started to restructure those frequencies by using electronic components like synthesizers and so on. So it was really the brass instruments and you know part of that opening mm. that gave me the first instance for the piece. And then if I if I only take a small second, I can bring that to one minute. So you two can minutes. You can expand that out. You I can, can make a, a hundred hour piece from a couple of seconds. So um, I'm going to start it playing here in the background. Now, how much, it, was it effectively just that opening section that you used for the, the reimagining here? A little, mostly, yeah. So just taking analysis files from the brass and then just kind of restructuring that uh, using uh, different types of software. Just a little section there of uh, Misha Era reimagined. This is uh, part of the project Nomos Uriah, the reimagined, which is coming to the National Concert Hall on Thursday of next week, March the 16th. And Neil O'Connor, the, the maker of that project, also known as Ordnance Survey, is, is with me in studio this evening. And I, I was saying as we were listening to that, Neil, there was a point there when I, we, we kind of heard a, like a pitch sliding upwards. So these, that's the sort of process that you're talking about. You take one note and you stretch it or you raise the pitch or you move around where we're listening to it on stereo headphones we might be listening to it in different parts of the stereo field Um, what kind of emotional what kind of emotional um, decisions inform how you do that Um, I think thematically it just comes from the points in the pieces that were of interest to Mm. me for example, the Ashling Gale, um, I, I took just parts of the harpsichord uh, variation and I improvised in and around it with a piano. So I was kind of reiterating uh, thematic ideas in his work. So it's it's more theme, I'd say, more than emotion. And again, people might think, well, where, where's the composition? But that composition literally means putting bits of things together. That's what the word means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what... what, what you know, it's not traditionally notated, mm. but it's it's notated digitally. And, and if you think about it, sonification is a word that you're you're taking sounds and you're spreading them out into the stereo field. So it's. I, I was talking to you before we before we started our conversation about Brian Eno, and I remember going to see a piece of his, which was where he had ran, he had kind of random notes, purely random notes that were then expressed in in color terms. Do you have a visual aspect to what you're doing uh, as well as an aural aspect? Oh, yeah, very much so. We we're, we have uh, Gavin O'Brien doing some visuals at our show. And, well, they're, they're not 
directly connected to the music. They mm. certainly have some sort of uh, influence from them. So the the designers and the visual the visual artists can respond in real time to the music because they're using uh, real time visuals. So there's that. Yeah, but they are they are responding to what's happening in front of us. Yeah. And when you're standing um, in the National Concert what have you got in front of you? What are you playing, as it were? Yeah, so I am a player as well. Um, it's a modular synthesizer. So it's think of it like a keyboard with no keyboard. Uh, it looks like an old telephone exchange where you plug in wires to different things. So I use these machines to process the sound in real time. So each time the piece is performed, it's completely different. And it's never heard like that again. Uh, and I'll have David Murphy on pedal steel playing with me. Mm. He also contributed to the album quite a lot. And it's an interesting mix because you think of pedal steel, you think country music. Very different. But you have here. country music and electronic music mixed together. Uh, there's also Garrett Quinn Redmond playing violin also. So this, those three an- instruments all, will really all add something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Neil or Ordnance Survey to give him his musical moniker. Uh, Nomus Oreda Reimagined is coming to the National Concert Hall on Thursday, March the 16th. Uh, pedal steel player will be David Murphy and on the night support also comes from the Dublin artist Sharon Phelan. nch.ie for full details on all of that. And that is our lot for this Monday evening. Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched. Amandine Passa-Devine was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Olin McGann. Talk to you tomorrow night once again. 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 